Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Decline to sign. Abortion supporters in South Dakota gather signatures for a ballot initiative that could override the state's near-total abortion ban. We speak to Bishop Donald DeGrude of the Diocese of Sioux Falls, who shares how Catholics are working to keep the initiative from gaining traction. Contraception on the Hill. Pro-life representatives introduce a bill to make contraceptives more accessible in the hopes it will reduce abortions. Moral theologian Dr. Pia DiCeleni shares her reaction and discusses how more and more women are turning to natural family planning. Value them both one year later. This week marks the anniversary of a pro-life ballot initiative that failed to gain the support of Kansas voters. Pro-lifers in the Sunflower State reflect on the loss and look to the future, how Kansans for Life are continuing to defend unborn babies and support moms. Over the past few weeks, we've been tracking several pro-abortion ballot initiatives that have cropped up in states that have enacted pro-life laws in the last year. States like Ohio, Missouri, Florida, and now South Dakota. Abortion proponents in that state have introduced the South Dakota Right to Abortion Amendment. One thing that's important to note about these ballot initiatives, they seek to override laws that have already been advanced in the states. And because these initiatives seek to amend state constitutions, they could result in a complete and permanent overhaul of laws that protect unborn babies. In South Dakota, it's no different. While some label the amendment as merely setting regulations on abortion, the reality is if a woman can find a doctor who deems it medically necessary for her to have an abortion, she can obtain one at any stage of pregnancy. This is particularly concerning in a state like South Dakota, whose laws ban abortion in all nine months of pregnancy. Joining us now is Bishop Donald DeGrude. He serves the Diocese of Sioux Falls in South Dakota. Bishop, thank you for joining us. What is your reaction to pro-abortion activists putting their agenda onto the ballot in your strongly pro-life state? Yeah, it's both, I would say, very, very concerning, but it's not surprising. Mm. So it's concerning because uh, of the dignity of every human person, which we know and believe that God has revealed to us and the integrity of every human person is so important. So it's very, very serious matters. It's very concerning to us. Not surprised because certainly we see it in other states and we know that sometimes people will advocate for what they want for whatever reasons and try to convince others. So I'd say it's both uh, very, very concerning, and it's, but it's not surprising. Right, right. And Your Excellency, how have the faithful responded to this potential ballot initiative in South Dakota? You know, I'm really grateful for the signs that I see of some really faithful uh, individuals and uh, groups that have a deep understanding of the integrity of the human person, God's plan, perfect plan for all of us. And so, for example, in our state, there's uh, nine different uh, organizations that support parents and families and little kids. Wow. And so, yeah, we're so grateful to have them. That's been in place. But also, as it relates specifically to the ballot, I'm so grateful for the faithful who stepped up to said, hey, we need to have a decline to sign, uh, you know, inform people like this is really serious and the way it's being presented uh, there's some deceptive ways that uh, those who are trying to get the signatures 
uh, are using. And that, again, is very, very concerning. Um, I've had people come to me expressing their concerns, like, I signed this thing and I didn't realize until afterwards that it's not uh, a pro-life thing. It's actually just the opposite. So it's very, very concerning for us, the strategy, the approach. But I'm inspired because there are really dedicated people who are stepping into that. They're trying to address it uh, and trying to educate people. So I'm I'm grateful for the uh, degree of engagement and education. Yeah, that is encouraging because what we're up against is is very grave. Uh, Bishop, talk to me a little bit more about the resources that the Catholic Church in South Dakota provides to expectant mothers and families. Absolutely. So this is long before me. Really so grateful there's been uh, a commitment from the on the diocesan end to uh, care for moms and families through our Lourdes Center. So this is where uh, people can come in, talk about their challenges, if it's an unwanted pregnancy or whatever it might be, and really to, to journey with them and to support them. Um, in addition to that, we're grateful for a St. Teresa's Fund, again, which has existed for some time to really help with financial needs. Mm. It's really important, I think, in all of this that we understand the church's great love and care for women and children, dads, families, uh, and so that we do what we can to support it. And I want to credit Rapid City Diocese, uh, also in South Dakota, for their initiatives, too. They have an adoption uh, agency that they help families with. They have a support system financially for mothers that maybe are trying to get through college Mm -hmm. and try to help them if they run into an unexpected pregnancy. So uh, I'm grateful for the ways that the church has. Also, uh, as you may be aware, we put out a statement, and I I really want to thank Bishop Buich for his uh, collaboration with that. Uh, Bearing the face of Jesus after Pope Francis's, uh, you know, insight that we have to remember. This is the face of Jesus. Every little innocent one Mm. is uh, so precious, and we must protect that. So we're trying to educate from the church's end in our role as uh, shepherds, because part of our role as shepherd is to inform people of harms that are coming their way or mm-hmm. are stirring even within our state right now. They may not even be aware of. Yes. So we're really trying to educate people on the reality of what's going on, some of the strategies that are being used to try to get people to sign because uh, they need 35,000 signatures. So we're trying to educate people. What is the reality? And then what has God already revealed? Mm-hmm. And of course, Our teachings of the church are just so beautiful and so rich on the preeminent dignity of every single human person. So we just want to be a support and a resource to warn people, to educate people in our role as uh, shepherds uh, from our prophetic office so that we're we're making it known, the truth. Yes. And Your Excellency, could you explain just a little bit more about that statement that you released with your brother, Bishop? Yeah, so the whole intent of that is really to educate people on uh, the long, long history within our beloved Catholic faith and in Scripture uh, of the dignity of human life and and uh, that we need to respect it. It's, it's how we should be conforming our own mind. We have a beautiful quote in there about how we need to conform our own mind, uh, not to the world, so mm-hmm. not of the mind of the world, but of the will of God. And so we're really trying to help people with Scripture some uh, church teachings from uh, previous popes or uh, church teachings of that nature, again, as an educational tool to help people understand what a great gift we have in uh, the gift God has given to us in human life. Bishop Donald DeGrude, Diocese of Sioux Falls in South Dakota. Thanks for joining us. God bless you. Thank you. You too.
August 2nd marked one year since Kansans took to the polls to vote on the Value Them Both Amendment, a ballot initiative that would have affirmed that the state's constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The Value Them Both Amendment caught the attention of the nation as the first vote on abortion after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Almost 60 percent of Kansans voted no, giving a major win to abortion supporters. Following this vote came other losses for pro-lifers at the polls, including in California and Michigan. As America braces for another heated election season, with abortion once again on the ballot in numerous states, pro-life Kansans are turning their loss into action and helping moms and new families. I spoke to Danielle Underwood of Kansans for Life on the day of the anniversary, where she and other pro-life advocates spent the day serving pro-life pregnancy centers. And Danielle is the director of communications at Kansans for Life. She joins me now. Danielle, thanks for being here. You are currently on the ground at a pregnancy resource center center for a special day of service. Tell us about this event. How many volunteers are out and about in your state today? That's an excellent question. I don't have an exact number for you, but <laughs> we've got hundreds of people who have turned out all across the state to help our wonderful pregnancy resource centers. We have over 50 of them in Kansas, and this is the first time we've ever tried to do a project of this kind of magnitude, but we're so excited to have 20 different pre uh, pregnancy resource centers that have decided to participate with us today. And our team is heading out to 14 different sites to pitch in, roll up our sleeves, and help out in every way they need from us. We wanna make sure we show um, our support for them. The pro-life movement is absolutely behind these pregnancy resource centers that are meeting women's needs every day. Mm. It's fantastic. And it's been a year since Value Them Both failed, unfortunately. I'm curious, what is coming next in terms of getting protections for life into Kansas law? We've had a very busy year. We've been trying to do all, we've been following all avenues available to us. So we've been looking at different protections that we've been able to pass. We were able to pass a Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which was very exciting. We got $2 million of funding uh, dedicated for the pregnancy resource centers in our state. And we also were able to uh, pass a an APR, an abortion pill reversal notification measure into law. Mm. All of those were veto overrides. And it took a tremendous amount of effort by pro-lifers in this state to make all those happen. Wow. But last August 2nd, we promised that we would continue to, first of all, expose the lies of this profit-driven abortion industry, and that we would never abandon women and babies. And so that's really what we're using this day for. We're, we're turning something that is a sad anniversary into something that we can once again affirm our promise and say, we will never abandon women and babies. We're going to be here for you. And we're going to pull up our own sleeves to do the hard work to make sure that you have someone to walk alongside you to make a life-affirming choice. Mm. And the passion that you have for this is really palpable. A handful of pro-life advocates in states like Ohio and Florida are in the same situation that your team was a year ago, Danielle. They're working to protect life. During a heated elect election season, we still see these ballot initiatives coming up. You've been through it. What advice do you have for people working in other states against these initiatives? I think really the, the biggest battle that we have is to make sure that people get accurate information about these ballot measures. They need to understand that the pro-life movement is the compassionate side of this fight. We are the ones who are here to offer true choices for women. And so if we can, you know, as a, as a movement band together to make sure that we magnify that message 
in every way possible through through personal conversations, through social media, making sure that we're standing up for the truth so that we can help people to understand what they're truly voting on and that we are able to rise up as a pro-life voice for so many women and babies. Danielle, for people who are watching this show from Kansas, how can people learn more about Kansans for Life and get involved in these local pregnancy centers? So on our website, we have a, a map of all of the pregnancy resource centers in our state. We have wonderful centers in small towns, large towns. We've got all different kinds. We've got medical pregnancy resource centers, um, all different kinds of places that people can engage if they would like to help out in very real, tangible ways. And as we know, these centers are offering free um just diapers and formula. They're offering classes for women, mentoring, um, so many different ways that we as a pro-life movement can help support these women. So I definitely recommend coming to our our website at kfl.org and learning about this day, Women and Babies Wednesday. You can watch us on social media and see all of the amazing things happening across the state and see how you can continue to be involved because this fight is not over. We are never giving up and we are in this for the long haul. Amen. Well, Danielle Underwood, thank you for everything that you do. Hope you have a successful rest of the day. I'm I'm sure that it will be. And God bless you. We're praying for your team. Thank you so much. Two Ohio Republican lawmakers have filed a lawsuit to try and keep abortion off the ballot in their state come November. The lawsuit was filed days after the pro-abortion amendment was officially added to the ballot. They allege that the ballot petition does not identify which laws would change if the measure passes. The group Ohioans for Reproductive Rights asked the state Supreme Court to expedite the case and say they are confident the amendment meets all legal requirements. But before November, Ohioans head to the polls in just a few days on August 8th to vote in a special election that could raise the threshold of support needed to amend the state's constitution. More than 300,000 voters have already cast their ballot, a dramatic increase in voter activity compared to last year's midterms. Last week, we reported that 500 veterans and military personnel have voiced opposition to Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade on military nominations. The blockade continues as policies remain in effect at the Pentagon that force taxpayers to pay for abortions for people in the military, including covering travel and lodging costs. This week, 5,000 current and former United States military members signed onto a letter saying they stand in strong support of Senator Tuberville's actions. In the letter, they say they, quote, condemn the military's pro-abortion policy and that the mission of the military is to defend lives, not destroy them. EWTN White House correspondent Owen Jensen asked the Department of Defense Press Secretary General Patrick Ryder about this. Here's his response. The mission of the United States military is to fight and win our wars. It's also our responsibility to ensure that our service members have access to health care, no matter which state you're stationed in. Uh, And in this case, we're talking about reproductive health care, whether it's in vitro or if it's an abortion. Coming up, pro-life women in the House of Representatives introduce a bill to expand access to contraception. We get a moral theologian's reaction. Plus, a popular new app uses artificial intelligence to show you what your kids could look like, how this new technology could turn children from a gift into a product.
You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. A new bill introduced in the House of Representatives would expand orally taken contraception. Sponsors of the bill believe greater access to contraception could mean fewer women face an unplanned pregnancy and ultimately seek an abortion. The Orally Taken Contraception Act of 2023 would streamline the process for getting oral contraception approved by the FDA for over-the-counter use. It does not apply to any other birth control methods or the abortion drugs mifepristone and misoprostol. Iowa Republican Marionette Miller-Meeks, along with nine other pro-life women lawmakers, introduced the bill the same day the FDA approved the O-Pill, the first birth control pill available without a prescription in the U.S. Some pro-life advocates are joining pro-abortion groups like the Guttmacher Institute and even leaders in the White House who say that expanded access to over-the-counter birth control is essential. But is birth control really a solution we should be exploring? To give us a Catholic perspective on this is Dr. Pia de Soleni. She is a moral theologian. Pia, thanks for joining me. I want to get your reaction to this bill. Would increased access to contraception actually stop abortions, and why or why not? Thanks for having me, Prudence. You know, this is it's an interesting situation because there's, I think, conventional wisdom says, hey, if there's more contraception, less unwanted pregnancies, uh, less abortion. And the the actual, the data shows us the opposite. Uh, several years ago, I was doing some research and I came across some studies from the Allen Guttmacher Institute. And it was like, I think they said about 46% of the women who um, got abortions were not using contraception when they got pregnant. And so I said, oh, and but it's you have to stop for a moment because what does that tell you? Well, that tells you the other 54% was using contraception, right? Yes. They were using contraception when they got pregnant. Mm. And back in 2017, Anne Faroudi, she uh, was the CEO of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which is like the Planned Parenthood of Great Britain. And she's, she wrote, this is an article in The Telegraph that you can look up. And she said, claims that contraceptive services can prevent abortion are a convenient lie, a convenient lie, peddled by wishful thinkers who know nothing of method failure rights or who are morally opposed to abortion, but find it easier to argue that it should be prevented than prohibited. Hmm. So these are, you know, Guttmacher and the British Pregnancy Advisory Services, they are not pro-life in any way. They're pushing abortion and they're honest. And the reality is, I mean, if you know basic biology, you know that men are fertile all the time and women are only fertile five to seven days a week, a month, excuse me. So that means that we have women using contraception when they're most of the time they're infertile. Hmm. And the fact is, is that, I mean, you cannot, you can say it's user error. Uh, or you can say it's the method, but something's not working. Women, when they're fertile, are still getting pregnant. Really fascinating statistics. And, and Pia, the Catholic Church is clear on its teachings about birth control and prohibits the use of it. So how then should we respond to such legislation, especially, especially because this legislation is kind of designed and pointing at stopping abortions, which is another very grave evil. How do we sort of approach this? First of all, we need to educate ourselves and we need to make sure that we have the facts. Uh, there are a lot of great websites out there that have uh, have this data. Educate ourselves and then we need to learn how to talk with people. And I think that that's becoming increasingly difficult because we're so polarized um, that we're surrounding ourselves. We tend to surround ourselves with, and not intentionally, but it just happens that we're with people who tend to think just like we do. So we're not engaging the world. We're not, you know, 
following Matthew 28, 19, go out, go out, you know, and proclaim the gospel. And so we need to understand that dialogue, what dialogue is and what communication is. And communication isn't just that I say what I, what I believe or what I think. Communication means that you heard what I was intending for you to hear. That's when we have successful communication. And I think a lot of us, uh, particularly very faithful people, we make the same mistake that everybody else makes, that if we say something, we've communicated, and that's not communication. So th there's a lot that needs to happen here. I mean, first of all, educate ourselves. Secondly, we really need to work at educating. And one of the things that I advise people to do is just to ask questions. I mean, asking questions can be a really effective way of just getting people to stop and think. And, you know, on a practical level, let's talk about the fact that most women don't feel good when they're taking hormonal birth control. Uh, it's just they, they feel nauseous. They have uh, swelling in their bodies. You know, they experience low libido. They experience depression. These are things that I've been hearing since I was a teenager. And, you know, I just think start talking and start a conversation and come prepared with empathy and with facts. Yes. And speaking of resources, you recently wrote an article for America Media where you talk about how more and more women are ditching birth control for those reasons you mentioned, and they're turning towards more natural methods of tracking their cycle and their fertility. Why do you think we're seeing this shift? Oh, I think it's women are there. We're being able really to come into a place where we're understanding our bodies better we have more information um, for all the problems that there are with the internet and so forth. Guess what? You can look up. Why do I feel this when I take this and so forth? Um, and, and I think that it's just more women are able to connect, particularly through through social and through internet, and to do the research and the fact that they're not feeling good. And you can, these studies are available at the, uh, at the NIH. There's just NIH, there's hormonal contraception affect who I choose as a mate and the articles will pop up. It, it's there and it does it. Hormonal birth control. It, it chooses uh, who we, who we, who are, are attracted to. And this affects mm. both men and women. And it has to do with, you know, where we're at in our cycle, how the hormones are affecting it, et cetera, et cetera. But this is pretty big. If it's going to change who I would select or be attracted to as a prospective husband, partner, mate, whatever word you want to use. Mm -hmm. This is tremendous. Well, Dr. Pia de Soleni, moral theologian, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an insightful discussion. Great to be with you. Thank you so much, Prudence. A new artificial intelligence app is sweeping the app store, sparking baby fever amongst a generation known for plummeting parenthood and marriage rates. The app is called Romini and can reportedly generate images that give a good guess about what a couple's child could look like, allowing for adults who may have a hard time seeing themselves as parents to now see themselves holding a lifelike child right before their eyes. One 25-year-old woman said that Ramini made feelings of motherhood rush over her. And although she'd previously given up on motherhood, she could now see herself getting there someday. While this seems like fun and games to some, others are concerned that this technology, paired with in vitro fertilization, could make the growing designer baby market an even more daunting reality. Parents are already using in vitro to select for characteristics like eye and hair color, skin pigmentation, and even whether they have a boy or a girl. Joining us to discuss this alarming possibility is Heritage Foundation Research Associate Emma Waters. Emma, thanks for joining me. What was your first reaction to learning about this app? I know you're a new mom, so I'm very curious what you thought about this. 
on the one hand, I think this technology is very exciting. Like you said, it allows people who may not be around many babies or even have a partner to really envision what life can look like with a child. Seeing themselves and a child smiling really paints a positive uh, picture of what the future could look like. But on the other hand, right after that, my mind just went to the implications of this with the assisted reproductive technology space. And so the thing with Ramini and other AI-generated apps like it is that these apps are not necessarily limited to what is real or what is true or what is even necessarily good. Mm. Um, so what happens, for example, when these apps are used to condense the pictures of two women or two men, um, and then you're creating a child that in reality couldn't be produced, but you're creating a market for a thing that science is actually learning how to do slowly but surely mm. that undermines, I think, what is really good when it comes to the family. That's a really good point. And we know that genetic prediction isn't always 100% reliable. Can you talk about some of the instances of parents demanding their money back because their children came out different than they'd ordered? Yeah, and this is the problem if, fertil if the fertility industry uses AI to create this build-a-child boutique experience, because all of a sudden the creation of a child isn't this um, mysterious um, gift-like experience where parents gladly receive um, the child that they're given, but yes. instead parents are like brought into this room where they're shown a host of options, right? So Ramini will show you about 20 different options for what a child could look like. Crazy. And then parents are able to say, well, we really like her to have red hair, but blue eyes is a fun combination. And I think we want this one to be a boy. And so then they're able to sort of design this product that, that's literally manufactured or handmade to be what they want. Um, but we have instances just of last year where a gay couple actually um, ordered a child through in vitro fertilization and commercial surrogacy, and they wanted it to be a boy. Um, but when the surrogate found out what sex she was having, it turns out it was a girl. And these um, men were genuinely upset and they went back to their clinic and sued them and said that we ordered a boy. Why did you give us a girl? Um, and this isn't just a product we're talking about. This is human life itself. Right, right. And and this could lead to potential abortions. Like people could go so far as to end the life of that child if it's not exactly what they want. And Emma, this app is fairly new. Can you tell us about who's using it, particular demographics? What's its potential to become really mainstream? Yeah, it's a great question. So the app has a pretty high download use rate. It's about $10 a week to use, wow. um, which suggests that given the number of people downloading, it's something that actually like seems to really like hit the spot for a lot of Americans these days. Um, and if you think about the number of Americans who really are living their life mediated by a screen, some of the holdover of the COVID restrictions, that a lot of people are really starting to view themselves through the lens of technology and through the lens of machines. Mm. Um, and, and it appears to be something that's actually like really, uh, that a lot of people are really interested in. Hmm. For many generations, you alluded to this a little bit, new mothers and fathers have anticipated their child with curiosity and excitement. It wasn't until very recently, I think the past 50 years or so, that you could identify even the sex of your baby via an ultrasound before you, you had your child. So how do you think new technologies have changed the experience of having a baby? Good, bad, what are your thoughts? 
So on the one hand, we know that women who are considering an abortion, if they have the opportunity to hear the fetal heartbeat, to see the child on the sonogram, that they're actually more likely to keep the child. And this is an example of technology rightly affirming what is before the woman's eyes and encouraging them in a path that is good. And to the degree that AI is being used that way, I'm fully in support. Um, and so I think to that end, it's been a very good thing. But with a largely unregulated fertility industry like we have in the United States, um, IVF alone brings in about about $3 billion annually. Mm -hmm. The entire industry brings in about $8 billion. You know that there are a lot of actors who were there to make the most money that they can, which means that for adults who were considering a child, especially in a very consumerist-driven culture, the number there's the possibility that it's going to reshape our expectations and reshape the way we think about kids. If kids are no longer something that primarily come from the union of a husband and a wife, but are something that you can create and design according to needs, legitimate needs that you have or just desires that you have for the kids, then I think that we're on a very slippery slope where having kids becomes more like ordering a product rather than receiving a gift. Yeah, that's very insightful. Emma, anything else we should be aware of about all of this before I let you go? I think it's just important to remember that apps like virtual babies that allow um, machines to become like humans have their moments, but actually aren't very, they don't last very long. But what we're really concerned out here with AI is that AI reduces humans to be like machines. And so that we make decisions and then create future generations of children that are more like machines that they are full adults. And I think that's the large problem that we need to keep in mind when we're dealing with all sorts of things in this area. Yeah, well, there's a lot to tackle in this area, and we're glad that you're continuing to keep track of it. Thanks for joining us, Emma Waters. Really appreciate your insight. Thank you. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life and sign up for my newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.